American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. So uh, I'm, I'm here to talk today about the idea of counter-legacies of the Civil War. I decided to make that my theme uh, for today. And I was thinking actually about where I left off two years ago. I gave a talk here and left off with this rather depressing image <laughs> of the Confederate Memorial uh, in South Carolina on the Statehouse grounds of South Carolina. Now, this is 2014. Uh, and less than a year later, uh, this uh, young white supremacist named Dylan Roof uh, came in, in Charleston, entered the Emanuel AME Church there, and of course killed nine people, massacred nine people there. Um, and uh, these series of photographs of him posing in front of uh, sites and symbols of the Confederacy were revealed later. And um, uh, sent really shockwaves um, around the country. <clears throat> and one of the things that that uh, did was to um, uh, ignite uh, a whole, instead of igniting a race war, which is what he hoped it would happen, actually ignited this kind of, uh, rash of 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 of. Um, of proposals to remove the Confederate flag and then also acts of vandalism against Confederate memorials and symbols of the Confederacy um, all over the South and in some cases even in the North. So to me it was kind of like the old um, duck rabbit image which unfortunately I didn't, be, I didn't put into the uh, PowerPoint because I didn't think of it at the, at the time but you know, our historians talk about this, the duck-rabbit image is, is the one where if you look at it one way, it looks like a duck, but then all of a sudden you look at it another way and it looks like a rabbit. And what happened because of that Dolan Roof and that massacre in Charleston, South Carolina, I think is that all of a sudden the image of the Confederacy seemed to flip in this way for many, many people. And it flipped from something familiar, kind of familiar sort of Moonlight Magnolia idea of heritage to this much more sinister idea of uh, a heritage that was um, um, actually destructive and, uh, um, and racist. Um, and so it, it opened up an, an actually a new way of thinking about the Confederacy, a kind of counter-legacy within what had been the official, more established legacy of, of the Confederacy. And um, that's where I want to start today, with this idea of the counter-legacy, and particularly with this image of the Black Lives Matter graffiti on this memorial, which happens to actually be in St. Louis, Missouri, the Confederate Memorial in St. Louis, Missouri. And I have three examples that I'm going to focus on. The first one is going to be uh, this one. I have two others that are all problematic in their own distinctive um, ways. Okay, but before I get started, before I get started with that, I want to actually start with a, a kind of very, very simple question that 
Um, I've been asked many times in classrooms by, you know, say undergraduates that I teach or uh, by reporters who call me um, out of the blue on the telephone. And it's actually a very, it's a simple, it's a, simple, a deceptively simple question, which is about commemoration. And it's basically, you know, why, um, who gets commemorated in public monuments and why? And it's one of those questions that um, uh, people who don't know a lot about the subject will ask. And it's actually a very profoundly, it's a very profound question. <laughs> and it actually takes a lot of um, thought to try to answer this question in any really serious, significant way. So if we think about Washington, D.C., for example, this question has almost never been asked. It was it wasn't really even asked by a regulatory body or a, a, a kind of official body in Washington, D.C. until around 2010, where the National Capital Planning Commission decided to actually sort of look at the monuments that have been erected in Washington, D.C. and figure out, well, what is being commemorated in Washington, D.C.? Well, surprise, they found out that three quarters of the monuments in Washington, D.C. are to military heroes. Okay? So, um, <laughs> so this question of what gets commemorated in public monuments, I think, is, is, is something that we could talk about for just a minute before we then look at the idea of what runs counter to that. Um, so I think it's fair to say that of all the really important and revealing stories and interesting people that make up what we would consider to be history, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I'm talking about social history here, well, really a bottom-up approach to social history, which is what Josh and you know, which which is what uh, is practiced here. It was practiced at, at the history department at my institution at the University of Pittsburgh. But we have uh, you know history composed of these countless stories, um, uh, and I think it's fair to say that what gets commemorated in public monuments is the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Um, just an infinitesimal fraction of the stories that are out there and the perspectives that are out there end up in the form of a public monument or in the form of an anniversary day, if you read the William Blair article about Emancipation Days. Uh, any kind of major commemorative uh, initiative. These are the very, very, very rare moments that reach public, public visibility. Uh, so to use an overused term, we could say that commemoration is a process of curation <clears throat> uh, determined by systems of cultural value that generally produce results that I think we could say are pretty predictable. Uh, so sometimes I've said, you know, when reporters have asked me this kind of question, I said, well, I don't know, dead white guys? But then, of course, if it's dead white guys, it's only just a tiny, tiny, <laughs> tiny, tiny, <laughs> tiny for a percentage of dead white guys who get to be um, put into public monuments. And what is, the, who are those people and why? Um, now, the, the thing about public monuments, though, is that this tiny tip of the iceberg that, that we see 
takes on a kind of sacrosanct, sacrosanct, <laughs> sacrosanct status. So as if that, that human process of curation that we actually know goes on, somehow gets completely erased and forgotten, and the monuments become the word of God. You know, as if they have just dropped from the sky uh, here. And that is what makes an image like this so very shocking. Because the monument has this kind of sacrosanct status. <clears throat> and the argument that we often hear then, and this is an argument that I've heard countless times in classrooms from a, from my students. Uh, the argument that I hear is that, like it or not, these monuments are our history. And we can't remove them, we shouldn't remove them, we shouldn't alter them, because doing that is tantamount to erasing our history. And so we'll go even further, sometimes critics, both on the right and primarily on the right, but even sometimes on the left, we'll say that it's kind of form of cultural Stalinism, like trying to airbrush out, you know, your history by removing these monuments or altering them or trying to reinterpret them in some way to, to, um, uh, to try to alter their now disagreeable content. Um, <clears throat> so, what I want to suggest, though, that is that this is um, the question, this begs the question that why should we, in fact, be stuck with <laughs> this little bit of curated history, this tip of the iceberg that we see here? This is not, this is not history here. Right? This is a little tiny construction of history that has been produced for very human reasons, for particular reasons at particular times. So the question is, why should we stick with it? What should we do with it? Um, if we made a museum, if we made it, I want to make a, an analogy with art, with art museums. I'm, of course, an art historian. Um, and, oh, sorry, I forgot here. So this, this is an example of the kind of right-wing critique of the, the um, the impulse to remove or erase public monuments. And you know, this is a this is a sort of typical internet rant here that we see here. So we don't need to spend a lot of time on it. Um, so <laughs> uh, I want to make an analogy with art museums. Right? So which are very self-consciously curated. Um, so here's the Metropolitan, of course, and so if we think about like the vast amount of objects that are out there that might possibly be considered art in the world. Like, well, let's just look at like a junk shop. You think about that. Again, this is just one array of a huge number of objects that could potentially be put into uh, an art museum. And then of that vast array of, of culturally of objects, a tiny, tiny percentage of them ends up in, in art museum storage. And then of that 
art museum storage, a tiny, tiny percentage of what is in art museum storage ends up actually on display, curated on display. This is again the, the Met, of course, and our friend George Washington crossing the, the Delaware. I chose a particularly commemorative example here. Uh, um, and so that, uh, the, the vast majority, we could say that the vast majority of the world's art has been lost, destroyed, and only this tiny percentage of it ends up on display and ends up um, uh, curated for us very self-consciously under the controlling hand of experts who call themselves professionals, who call themselves curators. Um, and many people who cross the thresholds of art museums and who enter these spaces um, defer to this process of curation. They defer to the definitions of art that the um, curators provide for us. Um, and it's true that museums like the Met really do have real authority. Um, you know, museums like the Met are the National Gallery of Art. However, at some level, even the museum public that is willing to go along with that, that's willing to accept that authority, I think that most people recognize that these are choices, these are curatorial choices, that these choices can be changed, they can be undone. And the reason I think that they, that, they, that they understand that at some level is that they've experienced that. We've all experienced the fact that things come down off of the walls, that uh, selections are changed, that, la that attributions are changed, that titles are changed, that uh, interpretations are changed over time by, by curators. And we understand this is a fluid process. Okay, so what makes monuments different is their permanence, obviously, is their fixity. And this is both their strength and their fundamental weakness. Um, so for example, I look at this monument here. Here's a Confederate memorial erected in 2008 in this little town, Baxley, Georgia. Uh, no self-respecting art museum in the United States would acquire this object. So in one sense, this seems like a very anti-elite, non-elite object. Uh, whereas the art museum seems like a very elite enterprise, this seems like a very populist enterprise by comparison. Um, on the other hand, uh, even a even a so-called populist monument like this needs the approval of local elites to gain access to public space and to enter into this public conversation. So this is a town that's 38% African-American, but how is it then possible that a Confederate monument can be erected in a town that's 38% African-American? There's no, of course, Union monument erected there. Uh, or monuments to black soldiers or to their, yes. Do you have any idea if there's any kind of debate around this, sort of in the city council? Or? Yeah, that would be interesting to know. I don't know. I just okay. found this online fairly recently. And went, oh! Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. It's a great question. I would love to know that. I would love to know more about this example uh, and why, why it was erected. Um, uh, you know, I, I, of course, I'm thinking about Trump now. I'm thinking about Trump populism and stuff like this. And this is, you know, I think this is kind of his constituency, his wheelhouse here, but how this um, how this is playing out, I would love to know that. Yeah. 
Um, <coughs> so, uh, so on the one hand, the art museum seems like this fundamentally elite institution, but it's open to change um, by virtue of the way in which it's curated. And then this public space here, the, the space of the public monument, on the hand, which uh, is in some way resistant to change, even though it can appear populist, it has to have access, it has to have elite um, approval in order to even take place. And so this man named John, uh, a scholar named John Bodner wrote a, a very important book on American memory in the early 90s in which he made a distinction between what he called vernacular stream of vernacular and official streams of memory. And it's kind of a useful distinction in some ways, um, this distinction between vernacular and official. Um, but ultimately, I think it's untenable. It's an untenable distinction because what commemoration does really is to fuse those two together. And this is a, an excellent illustration of that, this monument here in Baxley, Georgia. Um, it fuses the vernacular and the official in, in very powerful ways so that most monuments involve some combination of both of them. Some tilt more towards the elite, some tilt more towards the vernacular or the popular. But they have to, in a way, accommodate both in some in some form or fashion or another. And in order to do that, they create certain legacies. They, this kind of marriage of the vernacular and the official um, always ends up creating certain legacies and burying others. <clears throat> so now let me get to my three examples. All right, so we'll, we'll start again with the Forest Park uh, Memorial in St. Louis, this Confederate memorial here. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm talking to a very high-powered, highly informed audience here. So you know that Missouri was a union state. It was a slave state, but you know that it was a union state. St. Louis was a pretty much a union stronghold. Um, and so this Confederate memorial was erected in 1914 by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Uh, in a park uh, in St. Louis. Uh, and everything about it screams gentility and, and civilization. You know, it's in the classical steely format. It's got this, instead of, it is erected to the memory of the soldiers and sailors of the, of the CSA, but it, it, it actually doesn't represent soldiers and sailors. It represents this kind of bourgeois family, white family. Uh, holding its ground in a way here on the front, and then on the reverse, a series of really over-the-top inscriptions, uh, unbelievable inscriptions. This is not simply a marker to the Confederacy. This is a full-throated defense and glorification of the Confederacy. Um, so just to give you a little snatch of the language of the inscription, uh, you know, actuated by the purest patriotism. I mean, what are we talking about? The Confederacy was uh, formed, you know, to uh, uh, was a nation that was 
that, that was formed to oppose the United States of America. So, um, and ends with Robert E. Lee's quote, we had sacred principles to maintain and rights to defend for which we were duty bound to do our best even if we perished in the endeavor. So what interested me about this here was the way in which the, the vandalism really um, directly attacked the content uh, of this monument and particularly the, the content of the inscription to create um, a counter narrative, right? Because this inscription, uh, if we are to accept this inscription, this inscription is essentially equivalent to the proposition that black lives don't matter. Uh, if the collective we had sacred principles to maintain and rights to defend, the Confederacy, of course, was a nation that was formed to protect the institution of slavery. That was its core mission. And so therefore, if we accept the inscription as it reads, and if we identify with the we in the inscription, um, it follows that black lives and black rights cannot matter. So, you know, how to respond to that inscription then if one believes that black lives and black rights do matter and do matter in collective public space? So, <coughs> one way is simply by negation. <laughs> it's, it's this black X over the, over the inscription, the act of negation to say, you know, we are negating this idea. And then, and then an act of assertion. Fuck the Confederacy, black lives matter. Black lives do matter. This inscription tells us that black lives don't matter. We are saying black lives do matter. <clears throat> so I think this is really actually an extraordinary effective intervention uh, on this monument that, that creates uh, a, a really new way of thinking about it, because this, this is a, this a way in which, you know, we, most people who look at monuments don't even read the inscriptions. They just don't, you know, they don't, they take them for granted. I mean, so this really makes the viewer have to, it compels the viewer to think about the content of the inscription, to think about who that we is, to think about whether you as the viewer belong to the we or not. Uh, and if you do, what does that mean? If you if you are the if you are meant to be the we addressed by that inscription, you know what is your responsibility towards this monument? Do you accept it? Do you reject it? If you reject it, what is your what is your course of action? You know, so all of those things come into play here. I think in a very powerful powerful way. Now, having said that, I'm I'm not going to go into the policy questions about whether I would leave it or you know. Uh, we can talk about that. Oh, those are really interesting questions, and we'd love to talk about it more. But I'm really just talking about this as an intervention right now that I think is extremely effective. Okay. Um, so my example number two, they're going to get weirder as we go in a way, okay? Uh, example number two 
These are, now we're getting into things that are more in my areas of research. Uh, this is a monument which unfortunately I have not been able to locate. Uh, I just spent a week out in North Carolina and I was looking for this thing. Um, so as you see, you can read the, the metadata here. Um, as you can see, it's a monument to the uh, Thomas Legion, which consisted partly of uh, Cherokees from Western North Carolina who had um, remained in North Carolina, who had, who had managed to evade the Trail of Tears and remain on their ancestral homelands in North Carolina. Uh, and who were led by this fascinating <coughs> figure by the name of William Holland Thomas. Now, the reason that I am researching this uh, subject is that my wife's is the great-granddaughter, great-great-granddaughter of William Holland Thomas. <laughs> uh, and he is a, a really amazing person who was adopted as a boy. Uh, he was fatherless and was adopted as a boy by this legendary chief uh, of, the chair of the North Carolina Cherokee named Yon Augusta. And he sort of had one foot in the Cherokee world and one foot in the white world. He became an extremely successful businessman, partly in order to be able to help Yon Augusta and the Cherokees stay on their land. And he bought land for them. He became a land speculator. Uh, and he bought God knows how much land, 100,000 acres or more. That, uh, and uh, the land that he bought ended up being what is known today as the Koala Boundary, where the Cherokee in that part of North Carolina now live. It's their, it's their land, which they hold in trust for themselves communally. Uh, so. Among he, <laughs> William Holland Thomas is a very complicated figure. I could spend the rest of you know I could spend the next half hour easily talking about him, and I won't do that. But I will say that he was a slave owner, also, and uh, a secessionist when the when the war came along. And um, so he gambled that. Uh, by creating a legion of Cherokee warriors uh, that would fight for the Confederacy, he gambled that they might do better, they might get more citizenship rights with the Confederacy than they had with the federal government up to that point. Uh, so he threw the dice and he gambled, and of course he lost. <coughs> and then, to compound matters, uh, by the end of the war, he had gone insane. Uh, and he was in and out of insanity for the rest of his life in insane asylums, uh, speaking Cherokee um, in insane asylums, and so on and so forth. Actually, really quite fascinating end of his life. Um, but the story of the Thomas Legion and the Cherokee Legion has become this legendary story. Um, he he, he um, recruited them partly because they knew 
the local territory, they knew the mountain passes better than anyone. So they, they were defending the mountain passes in uh, what is now the Great Smoky Mountains National Park between North Carolina and East Tennessee, Western North Carolina and East Tennessee. They're defending, the idea was that they could defend them from the federal invaders coming from uh, the West, uh, which they did to some extent. Uh, but they've become this kind of legendary thing. And so, and they've been used by all different kind of groups, all different sides. So they've, of course, been co-opted in part by the neo-Confederates or the pro-Confederates. So this marker was erected by the United Daughters of the Confederacy originally. Uh, and uh, in 1935, it was still up in 2011. That's the date of this photograph. Uh, there's been a lot of construction and change in the last five years in the boundary, and I don't know where it is. I now know the people. Unfortunately, I didn't know when I was out there. I didn't know the right people to ask. Now I do. Um, so I'm going to have to go back to see. But I have the suspicion that it's in storage. Um, and it has been used, of course. Uh, oh, so I want to just, sorry, I, um, jump, I, I forgot my slides to say that the... Uh, Part of the, the reason that they, just to show you a couple of slides, part of the reason why the North Carolina Cherokee wanted to evade the Trail of Tears, um, this is incredibly beautiful land. I mean, it was also their own land, uh, <laughs> which they had lived on for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. That's, that's a matter of debate. Um, this is actually also Will Thomas's land that then became part of the Koala Boundary. Uh, the view from our porch. Uh, <laughs> and so, but it's been appropriated by, of course, right wing, um, you know, and so again, more sort of right wing ranting on, you know, this, in this case on Facebook. Um, and a lot of this, there's actually quite a, quite a lot of grains of truth in this, you know. The Indian soldiers of all tribes agreed that the South was right. Well, that's not really true. Every treaty, every treaty between the Union and tribes had been broken. That is true. They certainly didn't face that battle to save slaves. Well, that's true. Get over it, people. Lincoln did not invade the South over slavery. Well, that's complicated. He was as racist as one can be. Well, that's complicated. Get off. Get off Google and do some real research. <laughs> you will be astounded. Lincoln was a crazy evil man. <laughs> anyway, so, um, but, um, but the fact is, they had the Cherokees had had a very complicated and unsatisfactory relationship with the federal government. Uh, they had been screwed over. Let's say, to put it more bluntly, and uh, it was only by the brilliant kind of uh, tactical tactics of this uh, partnership between this white guy, William Holland Thomas, and this Cherokee chief, both of whom were brilliant people, that this very small group of a few hundred Cherokee Indians were able to stay in Western North Carolina. And it was a tightrope to the very end. Um, so a lot of that is true, and they weren't, they weren't in the battle about slavery. They were, in, they were there because they wanted citizenship rights. Um, so all that is correct. And so it's an interesting kind of counter-legacy. It's a counter-legacy within the story of the Confederacy. 
But it's also a counter legacy to the story of um, the story that the neo-Confederates want to tell as well, um, because they continue to have a very vexed relationship with the uh, mainstream narratives of the Civil War and the mainstream narratives of, of federal citizenship, of US citizenship. Um, so this, for example, this is Jerry Wolf, the beloved, the current beloved man, as they, as he's called. He's a he's an elder. He's in his nineties now, and he he actually um, was recruited and signed up for the Navy in World War II. And this is a man who had lived his entire life on the Kuala boundary, uh, up until the time when he joined the Navy. Kuala boundary is like fifty five thousand acres of land in Western North Carolina. And that was his entire world, was that Kuala boundary. And all of a sudden, he's in Europe, and he's landing in Normandy on D-Day. So you just think, an amazing story. And this is a, a story of a people who have a very vexed relationship with, at the, at the time that he was recruited into the army and served in the army, Cherokees couldn't vote. And they only got the right to vote after World War II. Uh, and they still, there still is tension. You know, there's still you know, interesting issues and tensions between them and the outside world, them and the, the park, the, the national park, them and the federal government. And so there's a whole series of interesting um, and ways in which they really protect their own stories and don't let them out to the uh, public at large. Um, and they certainly protect their stories about the Cherokee Legion as well as, as they do anything else. So the third example I want to um, uh, give you is based, is based, this comes off of this sign here. And this is a picture I actually took up in the same area, North Carolina. Uh, remember the fallen who paid for your freedom. Now, so we see things like this a lot. Um, I saw this all over the place up there, particularly. Um, this is a part of the world where basically every 100 yards you see a gun shop, a guns and ammo shop, and uh, every guns and ammo shop has concealed carry classes, and so on. Um, and so I think in some ways this is the most over what we like, we, what we say in academia, the most over-determined example <laughs> that I'm going to be talking about. There's a lot going on here in this idea of remember the fallen who paid for your freedom. And I think it's interesting to think about this, particularly in relationship to the Cherokee um, and the Confederacy. So if we just think about this, so first of all, who are the fallen? And who is you? Uh, do the fallen include the Confederates, for example? Uh, did they pay for our freedom? The con Confederates who fought against the United States of America? Um, the fallen include the Cherokee who fought against the United States, the, who fought with the British against the United States in the Revolutionary War. The, in the Revolutionary War, the, um, the so-called patriots on the side of independence came through this part of North Carolina 
and actually laid waste to all the Cherokee villages in a kind of scorched earth, Vietnam type scorched earth policy. They burned every village, they, Cherokee village they could find, burned every village to the ground, burned all the corn fields to the ground, uh, destroyed all the food and drove all the Indians up into the hills to in an intentional process of um, uh, forcing them into famine, essentially. So the, the War of Independence was a, also a war against the Indians, a war against the Cherokees. Uh, so is that, is that the freedom? I mean, is it, so, so what, what's really going on in that? So, so who, who's, who's freedom, who's fighting for whose freedom here? Um, and the, the example, the specific example that I wa actually want to use here is an example from my most recent research. And this is an outgrowth of, of that, that, that essay that I had suggested that, that you read. Um, and it's my cemetery research that is, that's ongoing here. Um, so I have been doing a, an extended project on a soldier lot in, in um, Pittsburgh, in Allegheny Cemetery, which is a 19th century, beautiful rural cemetery, 19, what's, what used to be called rural cemetery, and it's of course in the middle of the city in Pittsburgh, in, um, it was founded in 1844, and the lot, it's a Union um, soldier lot, or supposedly a Union soldier lot, um, that owes its origins, its origins go back to 1862. Uh, and it is now a federal soldier lot, so it's part of the national cemetery system. Uh, so you probably don't, I, I don't know if there are any experts here in the room on the national cemetery system. <laughs> um, the national cemetery system, of course, con consists of major uh, veteran cemeteries all around the country, which are cemeteries dedicated to veterans and their family members, um, which are exclusively for veterans and their family members. But it also includes what they call soldier lots, which are small typically small lots that were erected for various reasons inside municipal cemeteries. Um, usually because there were uh, dead from local hospitals and so on that ended up there. So this is a soldier lot of 300 graves uh, in Pittsburgh and officially part of the um, the, the national, officially run by the VA and the National Cemetery Administration. And I started doing this kind of um, digital humanities project where I started mapping all the graves and getting metadata on all 300 graves and trying to figure out where all the men came from, uh, where they came from and, and how they ended up here, how and why they ended up in this lot, what their stories were, in other words. So what I called, um, in a sort of pun, but I, I mean it for real, a history from below, um, a history, the hidden histories of these men that we don't get from their, the very sparse metadata that we get on their gravestones. And so this is the, you know, the plaque identifying as the social hunt. This is me. 
towards the very beginning of the project. Um, you can see the way it's laid out. And it's laid out in these rather perfect rows. Uh, it's not a grid format, but it's, uh, they're aligned very conspicuously in, um, in these rows. And I got really interested in, in that for a while, in the rows, and realized that these were like regiment formations. So as I said, the, um, it began as a union uh, lot. It began not as part of the National Cemetery system, but it began as a local initiative of the cemetery. They decided to set aside some ground in the cemetery for the burial free of charge of soldiers <coughs> who had died in, who have died or may die in the defense of our country in the present war. So in other words, people who did not have family plots themselves to go to, whatever, they would have a place where they could be buried, where the cemetery would take responsibility for the costs of their burial. It was clearly a union burial ground because Pittsburgh was a union. Uh, Pennsylvania is a union state. Pittsburgh was a union town. And this was a place where they were going to be burying those men who had fought in, in their defense. So like the sign, men who had fallen for their freedom. Uh, and that's a Union Memorial in the center, specifically erected, it was actually erected by a ladies association later on after the graves started to fill in. Uh, as I started to try to figure out who these men were, I, um, I started focusing on the first couple of rows, and uh, I couldn't figure out who these people were in the first couple of rows. Um, all the other men in the cemetery, the first 26 people buried in this lot, first 26 headstones, were not recorded in the cemetery's interment register. And I went and I talked to the cemetery about it, and they said, oh, that's impossible. They have to be in the interment register. I said, they're not in the interment register. And sure enough, they weren't in the interment register. They were like this black hole. Who were these 26 men? What were they doing there? How did they get there? Uh, and so I had to start investigating where they came from and why they ended up in this, in this lot. Uh, so I'm going to take you through... This guy here, M. Beck. And the story of him and these 26 people uh, is a really horrific story, actually, but it helps explain the, it explains the origins of this lot and throws a totally different light on the entire project of this cemetery, of this, of this soldier lot. So M. Beck is my guy named Michael Beck who died at a place called Camp Copeland in Braddock's Field. Uh, Braddock's Field is the town of Braddock, Pennsylvania, um, today. And Camp Copeland was a recruitment camp there for soldiers who had just signed up or who were just drafted into the war. <clears throat> and 
Camp Copeland turned out to be a very deadly place. Uh, an epidemic was going through the camp because, um, partly because that's what happened when you get men together in close quarters. They get sick and communicable, communicable diseases, uh, obviously, would pass from one to the other. But at Camp Copeland, it was more than that. It was more than simply the fact that they were getting, getting each other sick. It was also because the conditions there were just appalling. And so most of these men, if they had been in proper conditions, would have survived. But they were in uh, appalling conditions. And so they began to die in droves in this camp. And this is a register that I found in the National Archives in Philadelphia, just name, lists of names of people, of the dead from uh, this camp. Uh, and I began to find the names, names, I began to, names began to correspond with names of these 26 graves that were in my black hole um, that I, I was trying to figure out where they came from. So there's Michael Beck on this register. So Braddock's, uh, Braddock's Field. Braddock's Field was actually, a, it turns out, a, cur a cursed place. <laughs> uh, Braddock's Field is where is where Braddock came to his historic defeat, where George Washington in the French and Indian War, where he was defeated by the, um, uh, this is the British Braddock, when George Washington was fighting for the British in the French and Indian War, and he was defeated by the French and Indians uh, outside the fort, which was at Pittsburgh at that point. Uh, disastrous battle here that has become legendary in the history of the French-Indian War. Um, I don't know, Sarah, you're probably wondering where the hell this painting, this painting is actually in the public library in Braddock, Pennsylvania. <laughs> okay. It was bought by public subscription. They have no idea this, this painting is probably worth a ton of money. <laughs> they have no idea, yeah. So uh, it is now, now, Braddock is now chiefly known as uh, this uh, disaster of deindustrialization. And Braddock has, as a town, has collapsed from a thriving city of, you know, population of, I forget, 70,000 or something to like 4,000 or something today, and it's just, if you drive through the town of Braddock, it's just empty lots, I mean, buildings that have just actually literally collapsed, and empty lots, vacant lots everywhere. It's actually start, now starting to rebound a little bit, in part because of this man here, John Fetterman. Uh, so, <clears throat> Michael Beck was uh, mustered into service on February 25th, 1864, out of Armstrong County in the 2nd Cavalry Company M. And then he would die in early March. Uh, here's the census record from 1860. In 1860, he was 13 years old. So when he signed up or when he was recruited in, he was 16 years old. When he died. Uh, that's where approximately where he was from, farmer. 
He was, lived on a farm there in Western PA and about 60 miles or so from Braddock, which is down there. So this story didn't make it into the national press, but it did make it, it was a huge story in the local press. It was a huge scandal. It was very well covered in the Pittsburgh papers, and there was a lot of anger and heartbreak about this uh, story at the time. Um, the men who died there were initially buried in this cemetery in Braddock, uh, a little local cemetery that was very poorly kept. And I found this letter in the National Archives which described the conditions there and said that it was not in good order and needed to be put in better order, that maybe they should be moved to uh, Allegheny Cemetery in Pittsburgh. And that decision was made to move, to exhume the bodies from Braddock and to uh, rebury them in Allegheny Cemetery in Pittsburgh. Um, this is what it looks like today in Braddock. The cemetery is gone, and I still haven't figured out what happened to it. Um, it's now, it's a housing development. Uh, I actually have been there, but I didn't, for, for, for very obvious reasons, I didn't feel like a white guy uh, taking out a camera in a black neighborhood. I didn't feel like I should do that. Uh, I, should, I should use the proxy surveillance of Google Street View <laughs> instead. Um, so the, um, they were initially buried up in what was called the Stranger's Ground, the Pauper's Field the Potter's Field uh, in, in Allegheny Cemetery. And then uh, in about <clears throat> five years later, the decision was made by the army to rebury them in a soldier lot, in a proper soldier lot down in the flats. So they were up there to rebury them and they were the core, they were the initial, what I'm, I'm calling the kind of core collection bodies of this soldier lot uh, here. What became the federal soldier lot was that set of bodies, of 26 bodies that had come from um, that horrific uh, Camp Copeland. And they were moved there and then the rest of the bodies were arranged around them from other parts of the cemetery and from local hospitals and from the soldier home and all kinds of places that extended down. <coughs> And today, uh, actually, since I started my research, and I've actually been working with the National Cemetery Administration about this, they've been really helpful with me. They, um, they've actually put up this interpretive plaque now at the, uh, at the soldier lot. Uh, I, I had no idea, I was just going by it a few weeks ago, and then boom, all of a sudden I see this uh, interpretive plaque. But of course, it says nothing about Camp Copeland. And I don't think they, they actually don't know the story yet fully. Um, I've talked to them a little bit about it, but they don't, they don't realize, I think, how important that story is to the origin of the lot. Um, so again, this is a counter legacy, I think, here in the story of what we look at. A, we look at a soldier lot like this. We look at its perfection, you know, the perfection of these headstones in perfect rows, like a regiment that's brought back, in a weird way, brought back to life in these headstones. Um, and there's no indication of the real, of the historical reality, you know, that lies behind that and how they got there. Um, and 
this kind of counter legacy that I'm proposing here is something I think that's true of every war. Every war has its horror stories like this, its, its negligence, its disorganization, um, you know, its horror like this. Uh, and it's what we choose not to remember and what we choose to forget. Even in a, in, a, in a good war, like the war to end slavery here. Okay, so I'm, I'm very interested in your questions, comments. We have 10 minutes until <laughs> you're free for lunch. Uh, I don't know who's up first. I Sorry, think they were. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I thought that the example of the vandalized monument in uh, the Forest Park Memorial that you began with was really interesting. Um, you kind of, I think, for precisely the reason that you kind of teased out in the way that, like, the people who are not represented in that monument then kind of speak back to the monument and, and that right. part of the monument, um, or at least from a certain perspective. And I'm wondering if if there are any examples of monuments that kind of take this kind of discursive function more into account, I mean, I know that's happened to a certain extent within public art, where the idea is like if this art is for the public, we really need to think of the way that the public can be involved in its creation and the kind of ideology behind it. Um, is that happening at all within kind of discussions around monumentation um, or not so much? Yeah, it, you know, it does make sense. Um, I think it's happening a little bit. I'm, I'm actually on a jury right now in Washington, which is called Memorials of the Future, in which part the idea for the call, the call was for propose, it's, it's an ideas competition. And the idea is to create a call here where uh, designers come up with ideas that could be ephemeral, that could involve interactivity with, visitor, with visitors. Uh, that, in, that, in, that create new forms of engagement. Uh, so, and in fact, one of the proposals is one in which stories are collected in this kind of really strange way. And then uh, it's really kind of out there, but it's really kind of neat. You know, the stories are collected at these pods and then they're brought by parrot, these drone parrots, <laughs> which come back down and then tell the stories in different locations around the city. So there are, there are, ways in which, yes, people are thinking about this. They are thinking about how do we create these places as spaces of engagement rather than how do we overcome the problem of fixity, yeah. you know? Um, I really enjoyed your uh, take on that Confederate monument in Georgia. Um, could you please remind me, who was the author who wrote about vernacular and official streams? Oh, that's John Bodner, B-O-D-N-A-R. Um, I'm trying to remember that. Do you remember the name of the title of the book? American Memory? Was it American? What? Remaking America? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if, and this is, you know, full disclosure, my husband does public art. Um, and so when... I was listening to your account of that artwork. I'm wondering if what we might actually be seeing is not a division between the vernacular and the official, but rather between competing factions of elites. That there isn't, there's no one elite aesthetic in my experience. There are sort of, yeah, of course, yeah, elites yeah. with competing interests that therefore adopts competing versions of aesthetics for different reasons, you know, and like one that would adopt a vernacular aesthetic uh, 
maybe to gain um, popular support for a certain idea. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are, yes. So, and I don't know enough about Baxley, Georgia to know what the elites, you know, power structures are there. Yeah, but no, you're absolutely right. I mean, in some I've written about, you know, in the 19th century in my book, Standing Soldiers, there were art establishment elites that were very, very much against the common soldier monument. Um, and these were national kind of elites that, that were in opposition to various kinds of local elites. Um, so yes, they're cross-cutting in a lot of ways, these different, different elites, and we certainly can't lump them all together. That's yeah. interesting because I, I know just in my experience that is often the conflict between say like elites on the city council versus elites who are international art collectors mm -hmm. and they have this like totally different approaches to right. any kind of public art or any kind of monument. Right. Well, and when you dig really deeply into these local conflicts, you find you know the stories get very very complicated, very complicated very quickly. I don't know you know in New Orleans which. The mayor voted, you know, the mayor <clears throat> organized a vote to take down four monuments in New Orleans, including the Lee Monument, the Liberty Place Monument, and so on. And I've heard a lot of different stories about how that went down. And, um, and that's another example of how, you know, a lot of what, a, a lot is, has, is unsaid about that story hasn't been reported. Uh, and it's again about cross-cutting elites, you know? Um. Um, so when you were sharing that uh, virulent Facebook discussion, uh, one person said, um, well, we know Al Sharpton and the black racists have been vandalizing Confederate monuments all over Charlotte. Right. Is that, I mean, the, so were people going and vandalizing Confederate monuments all over the South? I mean, was that actually happening, or was the St. Louis thing um, a, a more unusual example? No, it was happening. Pretty, it's pretty widespread. And I don't know, I haven't, um, I haven't seen, I'd love to see a database on it. I've heard that people were starting to compile databases on the vandalism. Mm -hmm. Has, does anybody know? There's a website, Civil War Memory, that does a very good job of sort of reporting all the really small towns that have been Okay, all right. Go back to its blog. Right, is this Kevin Kevin Levin's yeah. site? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, I mean I just if you just if you just search if you just do a Google image search, you'll see a lot of different places where it's yeah. Um, yeah, you know you. I don't know if you know this about the Bachelor Memorial, but isn't the horrible Nathan Bedford Forest one on the highway outside, we should have the outside Memphis. Yeah. Isn't that a private? That is private, yes. That so is on private. People who do it. Yes. The there are, there are, yes. That, that is, that is a little bit of, that's a micro trend, I would say, <laughs> of putting some of these, some of these monuments, like Confederate monuments, on private property. And it's yeah. Artistically, it just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not going to be like the finest monuments in the world. Those ones. Yeah. yeah. I have a question that's oh, outside Nashville. Yeah. Outside Nashville. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering if you know anything about the 
than that. Yeah. I have a question about cemeteries. So, you know, cemeteries are both a public and a private place, especially working cemeteries. So I'm, I'm on the board of a benevolent society for a historical cemetery near the city where I live. And the question, you know, the reason we have one is because the city has such limited resources that being able to maintain both a an historic location and a currently working cemetery, like people still are being buried in the cemetery that's active. We always look at this space as what is the proper way for us to create the, the historical, like, the idea of this is a historical place, also this idea of it as like it's a public place, and it's perfect because it is this monument. But people don't think of it that way. People in the community don't think of it as a historic place. It's just the cemetery down the street. But this this particular cemetery has five Civil War soldiers buried, two Union, mm -hmm. two Confederate, two three Union. So we've got this interesting mix, and we've got over 162 veterans in there from all different wars and. You know, and it's it's this idea of these sol these soldier lots, right? Or or recognition of historic monuments that aren't necessarily thought of as historic. I'm just curious what your take is when you go to these places. What because of this particular plaque being here, obviously drawing attention to that as being a historic location. But there are some people that unless they've had relatives or recognize what those Headstones are. They may not recognize those for what they are. Um, right. They probably they don't even necessarily recognize what a federal headstone exactly. is. Exactly. I wouldn't have until I got into this project. Now I, I now I go around cemeteries and I see little tiny cemeteries in the middle of the woods somewhere, yeah. <laughs> and I see, oh, that's a federal headstone. Right. Um, right. So. Uh, yeah. That. I mean. I think all cemeteries are historic places. You know, I mean, they're really interesting. Uh, I, I probably, in North Carolina, on my trip last week, I probably visited 12 cemeteries <laughs> when I was out there. They sound tiny, tiny little ones, you know. Uh, but they, they, they all have different relationships. Like this Allegheny Cemetery, you know, is a... Like you said, it's a working cemetery. It's still a major cemetery where a lot of people are still buried. It's a, a you know, it's a business, and they have never, they have never really liked me what I'm doing. Uh, they have not been cooperative with me, and um, they have also not a particularly great relationship with the National Cemetery Administration either. I found that. Um, so it's strange. I so I'm not I'm not quite sure. You know, I'm not quite sure there's a one size fits all solution. So, you know, one you know for for this for this issue. Um, you know, I personally I would love to see more engagement, more historic, more engagement by historians with cemeteries, because I think of this there are a lot of stories there that need to be told, that come out of cemeteries but how to do it, and you're not necessarily gonna get much cooperation at all from my experiences. Now, if you have a, an organization like yours, I know I sometimes have been approached by organizations that are trying to get money and funding and stuff, and that's where they want historians to come in because they want, they need, they need money. Well, our primary goal, I mean, so the reason we did it was because um, the university I'm at had a class in cemeteries. 
class went out within a month, it had been vandalized and a bunch of the historic headstones had been destroyed or damaged or irreparably harmed. Yeah. And so the students had that had gone, had just felt so awful about it, they hurried up and created a, um, a living history sort of tour. And so we're celebrating our fifth anniversary this year. It's very fantastic that they were able to get enough money earned to get surveillance cameras, basically just to give an added a, a right. presence of security. But what we've done, the reason we've, what we've done with this particular project is that we have about half and half, half historians, half people who are from the city, <laughs> right? So city facilities and public works and, and the city historian and the historical society to be able to um, mediate the stories that come out because the municipal fighting is very interesting because they're historic families. So they always want their stories told at the expense of some of the other. So what we do is we create a theme, right? We're historians, so we need to create some sort of a right. narrative. And we do a five-stop tour where we pick particular right. residents and then encourage people to come. We sell tickets, it's once a year. And, we, and that's a way, it's dual. We're earning money to help preserve and conserve, but we're trying to get people to buy in in the community to the importance of this location. It's become very popular. It's it's getting more support, but there's still an incredible um, apathy by even people on city council to even show up. So it's a really yeah. interesting. Yeah. It's an well, interesting I know world. there's there are a lot of there are a lot of tricky issues there. I mean, you know, I've found that this Allegheny Cemetery, since it is a business, it has a investment in marketing and messaging mm -hmm. and so you know I'm not part of their messaging <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and they're so they're not interested in me and they're just all I can only be I can only be bad news for them mm -hmm. I can't be good news for them right. and um, so that's one problem that you know that's one problem that you run into a historic how do you get historical engagement where you're working with a business that has a marketing plan and da 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 and then there's places like the cemetery that I wrote about in my article. I turned out that I was trespassing on private property. And uh, I didn't know that at the time. And, um, and moreover, I, I was in a part of Washington County, Pennsylvania, which was it's an extremely right-wing part of um, uh, the state of Pennsylvania, it, it, Washington County was one of the very last, you know, up in, in the 1990s, it was still a stronghold of the Ku Klux Klan. And so I, 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 when, I when I parked there, I, I knew this, so I parked my car, I had my I had Obama sticker on my car, and this was in the first, from the first election, and so I parked my car backwards so that the, the sticker wouldn't be visible from the road. Uh, and I'm really glad I did because this guy came up to me and, you know, was he was very hostile, you know, about my trespassing on, on, on the property. So anyway, so, um, so you run into things like that as well because I just, you know, I just ramble around, you know, and look for things. And you don't, you don't know whether the land is, you don't know the status of the land because it's not, it doesn't, there aren't necessarily signs up that say, no trespassing, or hey, it's cool for you to be here, or it's not cool for you to be here. You know, <laughs> there might be people with concealed carry, you know, uh, around who, you know, who might feel threatened by you being here. So I think we could, could go back. You said you'd be happy to talk about the policy implications, yeah, like the graffiti. And the other thing I was just thinking about when you were talking, the article that you gave us from Slate about the yeah. should move up, end up in a museum. 
but also then yeah. the roads must fall movement and the removal of the Centro of Cecil Roads in South right. Africa from the University of Cape Town. So if you could just comment on those kind of that other forms of exchange that are going on around this kind of monument versus commemoration versus contextualizing. Right. Um, yeah, well, I was afraid you were going to ask me that question because <laughs> I don't really have, I, I really don't have good answers to that question um, because part of me agrees with the argument about the, the history museum. Like, I don't think that's a viable solution then to take thousands of these crappy Confederate monuments and throw them all into history museums. I mean, um, you know, uh, we might be able to do some of that a little bit of that, or choose some, or something, you know. But uh, in the end, that's a kind of pat. That's a pat answer to say, okay, we can remove this and put it into a into a museum. Um, and we haven't really thought through what what that entails and what, what we're actually going to do with it. And what would actually happen is that stuff would just end up in storage. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, that's really what would happen. Uh, and then. You know, so, and so effectively it's removed. It's effectively it's destroyed. Um, and so I used to say, you know, uh, so if you had asked me five, ten years ago, I would have said, absolutely no vandalism. I'm an art historian. I do not believe in, you know, I, I believe in the integrity of these objects. No vandalism. Keep them where they are. Reinterpret them engage with them. I'm not so sure anymore. Uh, I'm really not so sure anymore. And, um, you know, there's, there's no easy answers. Uh, if you, uh, I think that intervention on the Missouri Monument, I think that was a great intervention. Uh, if you open the door to any intervention, you're going to get any intervention. <laughs> And you're going to get Facebook, you know, rants on every, you know, potentially Facebook rants on every monument. Potentially. And so, I, you know, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough call, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm really not sure what the right, I'm, I'm not sure at the moment what the right answer is. Um, having a really pure stance on it is, is the easiest way to go. You know, I... I um, was in touch with recently with some people from New Orleans I, uh, who were involved in the, in the battle about the Confederate monuments there. And they were from a historic preservation organization. They didn't like the monuments, but their view was these are historic monuments. They must be preserved, period. That was their mission, preserve historic monuments. Um, and so they asked me, you know, for some examples and so on. And so I told them, well, okay, we took down Saddam Hussein's mm -hmm. monument. That's a historic monument. Why did we do that? Uh, we took down George Washington's monument in New York City in 1776. That was historic. I would actually love for that to be still up, personally. I think that would be really interesting if that were still up. If it was taken down, it was destroyed. You know, so that, you know I think Personally, I think it's a real shame, you know, but, but that's just my own personal, you know, personal view as an art historian. I'd love to see that equestrian monument, you know. Um, but, you know, so you can, you can cite examples of any, you can cite any number of examples of, 
monuments that have been destroyed that, where people have applauded, you know? And so, um, but they have this mission and, and they're, they're purists about it and, and they can stick to that. They can stick to their guns and they'll say, whatever it is, we're gonna, so I would, oh, you mean you wouldn't have scraped off the, the, the swastikas after World War II on the buildings in Berlin? You would have left them? Yeah, go ahead. Understanding that you don't want to come out and sort of declare where you are, I kind of feel the same way. I'm kind of curious then, more broadly, what role do you see academics, art historians, historians, other fields versus the local communities? I mean, this is the debate that I've been seeing, is that how much should people on the ground decide, voters, city councils, mayors, writers, and how much input should there be from the academy, from the Right. Yeah, well, I, I would really hope that local communities really engage. I mean, ultimately, where I came down on the New Orleans thing was that I thought the best thing of all would be to create some really something, again, bottom up. Like the problem to me about the New Orleans thing was that it was very top down. It was very Mary, Mayor Landrew was basically my way or the highway, you know? And, uh, so it, 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 it wasn't about, hmm, let's, let's, get the, let's engage the local community. Let's start doing some things here. Let's, let's activate this space. Let's activate Lee Circle and see what happens. Let's do some programming. Let's see, and then let's see what emerges from that. Maybe what would emerge from that would be, yes, we want to take it down. But maybe other things would emerge from that. But some... You could, you could do something, you could actually get something started and get conversations started and get engagement going around these issues first before you make that decision. Um, and because, you know, once you make that top-down decision, well, it's a game over, end of the discussion, you know, and there, so, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a believer in trying to create spaces of engagement um, where political discussion and the kind of agonistic, the idea of the agonistic public sphere can happen and we can have these difficult conversations and maybe have them creatively and try to creatively engage people Well, there. the danger of that is back to Georgia, right? Where the danger of that is Baxley, where you've got a significant black population, but not a majority. So all you need is like seven-eighths of the white people to decide that they want that. And it's happening. And then the, the, the opposition still disappears. Do you know what I mean? So the problem with public engagement is if you have a public sphere that is profoundly racist. Right. You're just, and in fact, you are re-disempowering the black citizenry by saying, you can say whatever you want. You know, you can talk about slavery all you want, but we're still going to put this Confederate monument here in 2008. No, you're absolutely right. It wouldn't work in a place like Baxley, Georgia, but it might work in New Orleans, yeah. though. Uh, so I see in New Orleans as a missed opportunity in a, in, in a way. Um, but you're right that it leaves off that whole thing I and mean, that whole swath of the country, uh, Trump land, you know, where, let's be real, it's not happening. That's not going to happen. 
Right. One more question. Okay. Do we have one more question? No? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very interesting that I really, like, it was really exploring this idea that these kinds of monuments were going to tell us so much about what's happening in the present and, and what might have happened in the past that they're trying to commemorate or commemorating. And I was also really struck by, it was very creative how you included the sign from the Two Rivers Lodge right. uh, on in your presentation. and. I picked up a little detail on that sign that I think maybe gives us an insight into this. Um, if, you, if you don't mind, that would be great, Professor. Thank you. Um, uh, when, I, when I read that, the statement, I think you asked some great questions on the, when it says, remember the fallen who paid for your freedom. The questions you posed, I think, are really very good. Like, who, who are the fallen? And who is your and whose freedom? And these are questions that could be posed. And if you look, if you read carefully on top, the little sign above it says yeah. an American owned family operated. Family operated. And, and I would say, okay, that caught my eye. <laughs> and I'm not, and I think maybe tells us a little bit about the statement that they're trying to make in the present as they're creating this, I guess, sort of simple monument to the past as far as um, veterans, um, people who died in combat. Um, what does it mean? Why do they have to put American owned? Um, mm -hmm. Who is an American? And and I, I mean, it's it's we could speculate, I guess, in a lot of ways. The only thing that came to my mind was a lot of small hotels, motels are owned by immigrants, particularly South Asian Indian immigrants. And, and, and in that area, in, in that area, there are a lot of yeah. um, South Asian immigrant owners of motels and and convenience stores. Yeah. Yeah. And so are they? Is it some sort of a statement related to that like we are different from them um, and then does that uh, maybe cause us to think a little bit differently what do they mean then by their that by their the statement about um, remember the fallen who paid for your freedom and, and it gets back to those questions that you posed about who are the fallen and who would be or then also yeah. you mentioned too about targeting what how who is the monument targeted towards and, you know, Target toward me or somebody else. And, and right. So I think it's just some idea. Yeah, well, thanks for pointing pointing that out. I had I had noticed that when I first took the photo, but I I'd forgotten about that. And when I first took it, I was thinking about that in relation to the Cherokee. But I, I wasn't thinking about it in relation to the South Asians who were in that area, which is interesting. Um, I was thinking about it in relation to the Cherokee, because of course, in my view, there's nobody more American than the Cherokee. <laughs> you know? Who were there first, but um, anyway. So yeah, thanks. Okay, we have to take a great. A